And we're recording. Hello, everyone. Hello, Martin. How you doing today? Yeah, so how am I doing today? Let me tell you something. I am in a mix of emotions from sad, disappointed, angry, all that type of stuff. Well, tell And my gut is sufficiently chapped. Is that how you say it? Is that the idiom? I don't know about that. I don't know about your <laughs> butt condition, but tell me about this cocktail of emotions that you're experiencing. <laughs> nice. Cocktail of emotions. Well, anyway, right, so um, for like the second time since the pandemic started, right, I actually got to go out to eat with my brother. Oh, dang. I shouldn't have said my brother. Anyway. Anyway, my brother, he's a real good guy. He's got a heart of gold. He got his a he has a rough exterior, but you know what I'm saying? He has a heart of gold mm-hmm. underneath that rough and abrasive exterior. Um, cuz you know, he's a very sarcastic person. He um he means well, but sometimes he can say um insensitive stuff. Mhm. <laughs> but deep down, this man has a heart of gold for his family. I love him very much. He's a great guy. Um, but anyway, we were talking, and it made me disappointed, right? Because we got into the subject of right-wing media on YouTube and just on the Internet in general. Oh, no. And uh, we got to talking about that uh, that person, that man called Stefan Crowder. Stefan Crowder? <laughs> Is that his name? Stefan now? <laughs> Well, Steven Crowder, but I'm going to call him Stefan just to, you know, um, make it more palatable to my tongue. Okay. All right. So, Stefan, right? Uh, this guy, whoo, what is there not to say about this jerk off? Anyway, we got to talking about that. And um, here's how we got in that situation. Um, so, Chris tells me, he says, yeah, man, uh, Stefan Crowder. He got kicked off of YouTube again. I'm like, oh, what did he say this time, this asshole? Like, he, is he too lazy to read the terms of agreement? Anyway, he said, yeah, he got kicked off of YouTube because he told the truth about a transgender person breaking into a bathroom and raping girls. And no, he didn't say raping. He said, uh, my brother said the word sodomized, right? Sodom, what? <laughs> sodomized, right? And, um, and I, I, something, and then I was like, oh, and then my brother's like, yeah, man, I, um, you know, I pay the Blaze Media every month. I'm like, oh, no, 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 so no. Your, your brother is giving money to Glenn Beck. And Crowder and all those ilk on the Blaze Media. Oh, Ugh. no. Those, I mean, those are two separate things, right? But, oh, God. So he gives money to Louder with Crowder and the Blaze. Well, he says he gives money to Crowder, but he also says something about the Blaze. So I don't know if he means both or what. But uh, something clicked in my head, though. Something clicked. And th- I had a Eureka moment. I had a re- an, an Eureka moment. Because as a, um, as a lover of professional wrestling, um, I can kind of see Grift more than people who do not. Uh, watch professional professional wrestling or know the history about professional wrestling. Uh-huh. So check this out. This 
um, is a pro wrestling tactic. And this is what people like Crowder do. So in professional wrestling, right, you have your good guy and your bad guy. Uh, we'll just keep it a good guy and bad guy. Mm-hmm. There, are other, there are other terms for them, but you have good guys and you have bad guys. And what sells in professional wrestling is make a good guy, fight a bad guy. In other words, you get people emotionally involved in wanting to see the bad guy get his butt kicked and wanting to see the good guy win. So what you do is you build up that good guy. So when Crowder purposely says things that he knows will get him kicked off of YouTube, he is playing the good guy against the bad guy, YouTube. And so this is intentional. This is what these grifters do because they're playing on people's emotions. It's like Big Perm and Friday. Stop playing with my emotions, Smokey. This is what this grift is about. And so what happens is, hey, I'm kicked off of YouTube, but you know you can still support me if you donate here. Donate to my Patreon or donate to the Blaze Media where my podcast is. Donate so that uh, we can get rid of tech censorship. So what they've done, what these grifters have done is they've made YouTube, Twitter, the bad guys, and they've made themselves the good guys so that they can milk milk more money from their rubes or their fooled customers i guess it's professional wrestling 101 it's carnival tactics in which professional wrestling originated in the carnival tag in the carnival but Mm -hmm. that's what it is that is very very insightful i like how the model is actually almost exactly the same like at the end of the day too like People like Steven Crowder aren't fucking journalists. They're not fucking advocates. They're fucking entertainers. Yeah. So is a they fucking pro wrestler. On your outrage. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they're just... I mean, they're more than entertainers because they're also influencers, too. But at the end of the day, the stuff that they put out is not just meant to influence people to a certain way of thinking or influence people already of a certain way of thinking but it's also meant to entertain that particular audience mm. like yeah. like the whole thing that steven crowder used to do i don't know if he still does it but like have you heard of the whole hashtag change my mind bullshit oh yeah that was it's, it's ridiculous yeah i'm gonna actually quote unquote quote unquote debate with the person who has their talking points in hand and who has their pre-made stuff already no it's ridiculous yeah, imagine, you know, just, like, going on a college campus and setting up, talking about, like, a handful of pre-selected subjects that you just ask mm. random fucking and people. editing videos, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's meant to, like, entertain the audience that hates, li- like, either liberal college students, progressive college students, or leftist college students. You know, because they're all usually seen as one and the same, even though there's some distinctions here and there. But the whole point is to entertain and, you know, and play the the baby face and using wrestling terms here to a right wing mm, yeah. audience. When 
when people don't realize too, and you actually mentioned it earlier, there's actually a lot of editing that goes involved in that. You think they're yeah. gonna fucking post anything that makes Steven Crowder look stupid? Where yeah. he actually gets or owned? Narrative? Because hmm. I guarantee you, there's probably been some of those college students who've actually owned him in a debate, but they're obviously not gonna show that. Like yeah. the the only right wing outlet that you're gonna see that does that is Caitlin Bennett's stupid Liberty Hangout oh, show. Yeah, and her she, scam. Yeah, except like she lacks the self awareness to know when she's been played, and apparently everyone who works on that also lack that self awareness. So they actually upload all the parts where they actually look really, really stupid because somebody is actively owning, owning. Caitlin Bennett. And for all those of you in our audience who may not know, Caitlin Bennett is, uh, she is the former Kent State gun girl who made headlines years ago when she graduated from Kent State University and she posted on social media pictures of her with, I'm guessing it's an AR-15, I don't know. I don't know my guns. Um, And she talked about how she made some pretty like inflammatory comments, as one does. And ever since then, she has tried to frame herself as a conservative gun rights activist, when she's actually more along the lines of the alt-right. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at her Twitter, also... Oh, Martin, dude. I want you to do a you quick... You don't want to go to that website that uh, she's on. That's oh, racist. I'm... Like Holocaust denying stuff. Oh, yeah. She's... Her and her boy have said some very it's iffy crazy. stuff about yeah. the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, But, Martin, I want you to run, like, a little experiment. And the audience can actually join in as well. So... So, Ty, do you know how to spell Caitlin Bennett's name? <laughs> of course... Um, so I want you. Uh, don't worry. Yeah. I will post it into the chat. I got it. Okay. So I want you to go Google. Type in Caitlin Bennett. Go. To, okay. Let me do that right now. I am going to Google. Hey, isn't this cool? This is an interactive podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. You out there in podcast land, do it too. So all right, I googled it. American activist boy. Okay. Wow. So how the hell is she an activist? Doing do some scrolling. It, the particular one that I'm looking for might not be on the front page anymore. But go to you can go to page two, if necessary, on the Google search. Yeah. Okay. When you get to page two, uh, do you see a website by the name of Distractify? Yeah, but I don't. I'm not believing this. Well, here's the Where th- she was, yeah, I don't know. Well, here's the thing though that I particularly enjoy about this particular rumor. So those of you who are aware of Caitlin Bennett, uh, a very popular rumor about her that has circulated online ever since she gained fame was that as a student at Kent State, she got really, really drunk at some party or whatever and she pooped her pants. Um, Now, the truth of that has been disputed. There has been no concrete proof of it, but the fact that someone as vile as Caitlin Bennett having this reputation that follows her around like a, like a, 
how should I how should I word this? You know, like a scent almost, a foul aroma, like this reputation. And it used to be where it actually would be on the very front page of a Google search, where it would actually come up with some headlines that asked, "Did Caitlyn Bennett poop her pants at a party?" And the thing is, I don't care if it's actually true or not. I think it's funny. And given, like, her behavior, I think it's a very fitting, almost karmic thing. Because she is much like these other grifters. She promotes this, you know, fake outrage towards the left, the liberals, what have you. And it's all meant as a grift. Like, Caitlin Bennett... I'm glad she actually exists because she, even other conservatives are embarrassed by Caitlin Bennett. (laughs) Like in one of her early videos, right? She's harassing some people about the topic of abortion and she's following, you know, like a father and her really young daughter. Like the daughter looks like she's like five and She's, like, following them around, asking questions about, like, do you think it's okay to get an abortion? And she's being really pushy and creepy. Mm. Like, why would you approach anybody like that, let alone a child? Well, you know one of the scams she has concerning that is... Um, she has a scam where she she's she tells the people who watch her videos, or whatever her rubes. I like the rube is a carnival term for, or a mark, whatever. But a rube like Bob. Uh, she, huh? Like Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she tells. So she has this grift where she uh, tells her audience, "Hey, I need security. I'm out here, and these college kids are rowdy." Even though she's the one choosing to go. And ask these college kids these provocative and deeply offensive questions. She says to her uh, to her rubes, um, "Hey, give me some money so I can buy some more security." <laughs> I'm like, "What? <laughs> Did you? That's that's a grift." Have you ever seen that video where I think she's in Athens, Ohio, but like a whole crowd of students is like following her, chanting, "Caitlyn Bennett shit her pants" or something. And oh, one called it the B word? No, they said Caitlin Bennett oh. shit her pants. Uh, and they kept chanting it. And they're following her around the whole campus. And there's like his bo- there's like this security guard. He's like this big ass dude. And to get her through the crowd, he basically has to hold her on his chest like a, you know how like a baby? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you hold like a baby on your chest with like that little harness or whatever. It was exactly like that. <laughs> Um, it was brilliant. Um, did I ever tell you about the time I actually met Caitlin Bennett? No. Okay, so I did not actually have a conversation with Caitlin, but this was years ago when she actually uh, visited Ohio State's campus. So Hmm. I was a student at the time, and there was a big protest brewing on North High Street. On It was like right inside... Uh, the Ohio Union. And the protest was in response to a talk that was being, 
that was presenting uh, Ben Shapiro. So this talk featured Ben Shapiro, right? And obviously there was a backlash to that among the students there. So me and a friend I, who I just actually stumbled upon are like walking down North High Street. Um, and because it's around October, getting close to Halloween or something, we noticed some people dressed up in some costumes. And then I walk, we walk past them, but I recognize the logo on the microphone and stuff. It's Liberty mm. Hangout. Oh, yeah. And there's, I noticed this little white girl who is dressed up in Native American kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, deliberately, oh, yeah. deliberately offensive stuff. And I'm like, I go to my friend, I'm like, that's Caitlin Bennett. And he goes like, is that Caitlin Bennett? And I'm like, yeah, that's Caitlin Bennett. So we go up to them, right? And it's kind of late at night. They had done most of their trolling and stuff earlier in the day. But we go up to them. And she's there in this really offensive-looking Native American outfit. Um, well, it's not even an outfit. It's a fucking costume. And uh, a cameraman is there. And some other guy who I've seen in a lot of videos. He's like this dude dressed up as a cowboy but in white face. But the white face paint looks like dried semen kind of is <laughs> smeared on his face. And <laughs> it's it's quite a sight. Like, so my friend goes up to him and is like, yo, can we get like a picture real quick? Uh, Caitlin Bennett ignores us. She has her back turned against us yeah. deliberately. But the cowboy dude is, I don't remember this guy's name. Um, he's been in a lot of like stupid stints with Liberty Hangout before, but he's like, yeah, sure. And he has this, we have this picture that I still have saved. I think it's on my PC right here, um, where she's got her back turned and there's this goofy looking dumbass who's just giving us this big old grin. Oh, I actually have the picture right here. Hold on. Let me share it to you. It's, it's gold. Uh, okay, come on, buddy. Let me look. If anybody can hear him breathing out there, I think it's my dog. He's sleeping. How's He's he? got the cutest little breath. Like, How is he doing? How is Dougie doing? Oh, he's doing good. He just didn't want to eat. This is the picture right here. Oh. Oh, my God. That dude, that dude looks like he's from the movie White Girls or something. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think the guy behind him to his left, I think that is Caitlin Bennett's then-fiancé, uh, Justin Muldo, I think his oh. name is. He's dressed like he's from the hood. Oh! I don't know. He the didn't really... He? That dude didn't look like he was... In a costume. Uh, yeah, that's... No, that is, he's just like... He, yeah. Yeah, but. so... Justin has actually had some very interesting... Things to say about Jews... In the Holocaust. Mm. Um, actually, let's let's pull this shit up. You know what? Oh, since man, we're that's on like, the, That's Wexner Center, isn't it? Behind there. That is right. Yeah. So let me pull some stuff up here. Oh, look. Oh, there's an article on Snopes. 
Um, let's see. Let me share the the Snopes article. It's not the one I was looking to find, but yeah, it's about the one about that uh that poll they had on Liberty Hangout. That uh oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, f- I'm familiar with that. Yeah, one hundred percent familiar with that BS. Yeah. So, audience, if you don't remember what we were ta- what we we're referring to, um, back in 2016, uh, Liberty Hangout, the organization that Caitlin Bennett runs, uh, on their Twitter. They hosted a poll, and the poll asked, asking out of curiosity, do you believe the Holocaust happened as we've been told? And the final results were 50-50, yes and not exactly. And then one guy asks, what do you think? And then Liberty Hangout responds, "It does," and I'm quoting here, it doesn't seem possible that 6 million were killed. Hmm. Well, they don't know the history of the primary sources, say. Mm-mm-mm. It's... I mean, both sides agree on, the, on that very topic. I mean... Yeah, it's... It is... The people who were killing and the people who were being killed. Holocaust revision is basically just another form of Holocaust denial. It's meant it's, to... It's, it's another form of the elders of the Protocols of Zion. Yeah. It's the me- Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yeah, it's it's and it's always masked as like, oh, I'm not denying it happened. I'm just asking questions, you know. <laughs> That's the shit they're doing. Um, well, see, right now I'm thinking, how should we handle these people? Like, like here, I'm serious. Like, how do we handle people who are obviously so mentally um, incompetent? Nope. Like, obviously, we don't want to put them in camps. Obviously, we don't want to hurt people. We don't advocate that stuff here, y'all. We don't advocate that. So what do we do? I don't, like, what? I'll just say this. The only kind of camp that Caitlin Bennett needs to go to is one that teaches her how to be potty trained. And that's it. <laughs> okay. um, I linked another one, another thing to you down there. Like, this is kind of like on the more extreme end of the right-wing grifter phenomena. Like, it's hard to tell what she actually believes and doesn't believe, but the fact that she is the... She's like the public face of Liberty Hangout, this whole organization. And before Liberty Hangout was a thing, Caitlin Bennett was the chapter president of the Kent State Turning... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep, the, the Kent State Turning Point USA chapter. Yep. And one of their very brilliant decisions to do was to hold a demonstration against safe spaces, I think, by uh, having their members wear diapers and set up, like, a playpen. And then they were, like, so publicly ridiculed, they fucking closed that chapter down. My God. We must secure the... I'm looking at a tweet from Liberty Hangout from September 18th, 2017. We must secure the existence of our people. Who's oh which people? <laughs> which guy? Which it sounds just like Hitler said in the fucking Mein Kampf. Oh, let's look at this other. And these are all deleted, by the way. You're never going to find these again because they deleted them after the backlash. But they are immortalized. Um, another poll by Liberty Hangout from September 6, 2017. White genocide is real. Not happening. Happens in other nations. Maybe happening, but I- IDK. Uh, the major- the overwhelming majority, 44.9%, said it's real. Um, so, 
besides, you know, like... Well, it could be real. I mean, the way you define genocide. Well, but it's not a thing, though. But like, it's not. I agree. White, yeah, it's not. The whole... It's all part of, like, white replacement conspiracy theory yeah. bullshit. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. The people that, like, Lauren Southern pushed. Um... And actually, they actually did post. They actually did fucking post like uh, great replacement shit. Um, and they're saying moving millions of non-white immigrants into tra- traditionally white countries over a period of years. Uh, this alone is not genocide, but the next step makes it genocide. They're not sharing where they got this from. It's just some shit. Um, opening the borders will always result in full communism. Another gold- golden tweet. Libertarians who support open borders are complicit in genocide. Uh, that was April 19th, 2019. Uh, there's the whole ex- the existence of our peeper, people, our peeper, our people, and a future for liberty hangout. The existence of our people. Yeah, that's... Mm. When liberals, and I'm, I'm, I'm just reading quotes here at this point. When liberals say they're for diversity, what they really mean is that they're, they hate white people. uh but more damning though are the relationships that liberty hangout formed over the years with uh white nationalists like um so you may not know who this guy is but there was a neo-nazi by the name of augustus sol invictus and he ran for a senate campaign in 2016 Mm. so Wikipedia has him as a uh, American far-right political activist, attorney, blogger, and white nationalist. He has been, since January 2020, he has been on trial in Florida for domestic violence and firearms charges. Oh, yeah, that, his name is fucking white supremacist, Augustus Invictus. Majest- That's not a real name. No, his real name is Austin Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, Gillespie. Uh... Invictus was a candidate for the Libertarian Party nomination in twenty in the twenty sixteen United States Senate election in Florida. Uh, local party chairman Adrian Wiley resigned over his candidacy and the unwillingness of the party to disavow it. So, oh look, the Libertarian Party hosting white nationalists. Well, gosh, who would have ever thought that was a thing? He lost overwhelmingly in the primary to opponent Paul Stanton, gaining twenty six. Point five percent of the votes cast. That's still pretty alarming. Um, Invictus was accused by the Libertarian Party of Florida of advocating for eugenics and state-sponsored murder. Uh, oh yeah, pretty damning shit. Invictus was a headline speaker at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, on August twelfth, twenty seventeen. That ended with three deaths. <sighs> Yeah, uh, he has represented Marcus Fela, the former head of the white supremacist group American Front, in court. Because he was doing attorney stuff, apparently. Um, wow. You know what's scary about all these people? They're young. They are all very young. Like, Problem is, they're young, and when you're young, you're dumb, and you're full of cum, and you don't know anything other than you're young. When I was young, I was listening to Glenn Beck. You know what I'm saying? When I was in my early 20s, I liked Glenn Beck. I I actually believed, you know, in, in George W. in George Bush II, and I voted for him in 2004. I was stupid. I was 
young and dumb and stupid. These people are young, but the problem is with these people, and I say these people meaning these young, whatever, libertarian, whatever you want to call these, these grifters, they have an, an audience that really truly believes this shit, a dangerous audience, which storms capitals. You know what I'm saying? No shit. With plays, who plays with their guns, like they do with their, you know, their nether regions. No kidding. Scary people. Yeah, and it's like these, like these people are stupid, but they're not stupid, stupid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like they possess obviously a modicum of intelligence to continue this grift and make money off of people willing to throw yes. money at them. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily have to be like a crypto Nazi or whatever to do this. Yes. Um, like I would never say that uh, Stephen Crowder is a fucking Nazi. I will say the man's a fucking racist uh, oh, because yeah. the shit he's yeah. done and said is to me indicative of something a racist would do and say. Well, he thinks it's funny too. Yeah, and I've actually been watching a lot of Crowder videos last last week. <laughs> Holy shit! How have you not like had an aneurysm? Oh, that's what I'm saying. It's making me angry that my, that someone whom I love and somebody who actually is a good person who has a heart of gold uh, supports people like Crowder. <laughs> yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wrap up this uh, Caitlyn Bennett bullshit because it's been a long time since I've had to read anything about Caitlin Bennett. And on the one hand, I am glad that she doesn't really have the relevance that she used to have. Like, she's kind of just... You either know who she is or she isn't. Like, she's never going to do anything that is ever going to be as noteworthy as, like, her earlier shit. She's just going to kind of, like, exist in this ecosystem of, like, open neo-Nazis pretending that they're not actually nazis um so some of the relationships that she's formed with again uh augustus invictus the guy we just mentioned um another guy maybe you've heard of him chris cantwell who i believe he's the host of radical agenda um and this dude it had a rep because i think he was at january 6 too or not january 6 um charlottesville oh and let me see here. It's been a little while since I've read anything about this dipshit as well. Uh, Wikipedia has his like other names listed as the crying Nazi. <laughs> um, wow, he let himself go in 2014. Holy shit. So, a member of the broader alt-right movement. Can't well earn attention during and immediately after his participation... In the August 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Cantwell was featured prominently in the Vice News Tonight documentary about the rally and its participants, in which he was shown threatening to kill protesters, wielding rifles and a handgun, and joining fellow anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists and marching with tiki torches, chanting, and I'm quoting here, Jews will not replace us. Shortly after the rally... Cantwell published a video in which he wept while sharing that he had learned there was a warrant for his arrest. The video went viral, in which some observers, noting the discrepancy between the emotional video and the tough persona Cantwell had projected in the Vice documentary. He had since been widely referred to and ridiculed as the crying Nazi. That's a lot of citations for that crying Nazi bit. Uh, 
In July 2018, Cantwell was convicted on two counts of misdemeanor assault and battery for pepper spraying two people at the rally. Mm. On September 28, 2020, Cantwell was found guilty on one felony count of transmitting extortionate communications and one felony count of threatening to injure property or reputation. Cantwell was sentenced to three years and five months in prison on February 24, 2021. The the charges stem from telegram messages Cantwell sent to a member of a rival neo-Nazi group in which he threatened to... And uh, content warning here, folks, for SA... Rape the man's wife in front of his children if he did not give Cantwell information about the identity of another member of the group. Wow. That's that's like that's speechless. That's shocking speechless. The thing the the groups of people that grifters will like openly associate with. Mm-hmm. Like on the article I shared with you about the leaked chats showing anti Semitism and all that. Yeah, I was looking at them. Yeah, these are these are official Liberty Hangout like ads featuring Chris Cantwell and Augustus Invictus, who are guests on Liberty Hangout. Um, that's not even didn't even cover like what uh, the anti-Semitic texts and stuff that were kind of shared amongst the Liberty Hangout folks. Mm-hmm. So some of these texts, uh, let's see here. So da, 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 da. screenshots attained by Colorado Springs anti-fascists from a private Facebook chat in 2017 appear to show repeated themes of anti-Semitism in conversations between Caitlin Bennett and her associates. Members of the anarchist media collective, It's Going Down, reached out to the Jewish worker who originally tweeted out the screenshots after also being sent them to see if members of Liberty Hangout responded with comment, which they did not. It's Going Down also reached out to Teji Roberts, who is listed as taking part in the chat over Twitter to verify and comment on the messages, but received no response. And the tweet here says, Leaked screenshots provided to the Jewish worker show Kent State Gung Girl at Caitlin Murray OX, which is Caitlin Bennett's Twitter handle, and her fiance at Justin Mald, Mald- what is it? Maldow? I'm going to say Maldow. Along with at Liberty Hangouts and M. Heil Media. The fuck? M. Heil Media? Being openly anti Semitic. Uh, and they posted receipts too. Um, oh, looks like it's deleted. I mean, it's this is pretty old news at this point. But yeah, so going on. Kaylin and her friends are shown ridiculing Jews and Jewish culture Mm. and even making jokes about Hitler while mocking a kosher meal request form from a Turning Point USA event. The chats feature heavy use of triple parentheses, a dog whistle used by anti-Semites to signal that someone or something is Jewish or of Jewish origin. And it's showing some picture. And I mean, screenshot, like, to be fair, you, you, you can fake screenshots. So that in mind, uh, it looks like, um, oh God, I'm reading, I'm looking at the text right now, uh, from sent by Caitlin. Uh, this is definitely like a group chat. Uh, let's see. Oh, her boy, Justin Maldo shared a picture of this one girl. I don't, I don't know if she's with turning points or not. 
And he comments, she looks Jewish. Coincidence in the triple parentheses. I don't know if... Oh, and they are showing Facebook profiles of some Jewish folks. Making comments like, Turning Point Israel. Again, that's Justin Moldau. And Caitlin responding, I bet they have a lot of Jewish and Israel first donors. Weird how they, this is Justin Moldau again, in triple parentheses, they can donate their money to these organizations, but not directly to Israel. So, yeah, I'm not going to read all of them. Uh, But that's some of the worst examples of what exists on the right-wing griftosphere. Well, before we get to our main event, and off that topic to piggyback here, another thing that I'm seeing is the useful idiot that is making people go to the right wing, I guess to speak. So first of all, let's talk about the term useful idiot. And then I have another interactive thing out there for everybody out there in podcast land. So when we talk, when the term use in political jargon, right, politics, the term useful idiot is a negative term that is you that originally, uh, that originated in the Cold War to describe non-communist regarded as susceptible to communist propaganda and manipulation. And basically, useful idiot today means it's, it's somebody who's propagandizing for a cause without fully comprehending the cause's goals or somebody who's propagandizing for a cause with which they disagree. Let me show you something. All right, everybody out there, everybody, give me your ears, lend me your ears. And let me ask you this question. I'm going to read for you thumbnails from YouTube videos from a person. And I want you to tell me out there. Here's the question. Is this person on the left of the political spectrum or the right side of the political spectrum? Let me say that again. I'm going to read thumbnails from YouTube videos. Recent ones, too. We're talking days ago. You know, weeks ago. I'm going to read these thumbnails. You tell me out there, are these from the left side or the right side of the political spectrum? Here we go. Three, two, one. First video. Facebook censoring criticism. Hmm. All right. Comedian schools CNN doctor again. COVID surges in vaxxed communities. Joe Rogan wrecks CNN. Jaw-dropping corporate tyranny, Dems sabotage Dems, strike wave coming, Biden approval plummets, pro-censorship whistleblower, a quote from President Obama saying, I did what I was paid to do, Biden blames Kamala for border, crowd chants war criminal to Hillary Clinton, Chink threatens Rogan. All right. So let me. All right. So cornbread. Do you think that's from somebody on the right or the left side of the political spectrum? Um, is this all one source? Yeah. These are their videos for the last week. Uh, the- I'm going to. That's actually tough because I have encountered lefties mm-hmm. who would actually share shit like that. 
Um, I'm going to say, though, especially mostly because of the Joe Rogan stuff. I'm going to say right wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, you're wrong. Oh. It's I'm... Jimmy Dory or Door, whatever. Wait, Jimmy Dore? If I'm lying, I'm flying. Mother, of course it would fucking be Jimmy Dore. Holy fucking shit. And so we, so he's a useful idiot to the right because the right wingers are using his stuff to support their goals and fire and fire up their rubes. Same thing with Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, he's a li- most of his political views are liberal, and I fucking love Joe Rogan. I love him, but man, he is with this anti-COVID stuff, or he is going fucking. Useful idiot. He's turning into a useful idiot. Yeah, like, remember, like, Jimmy Dore has hosted Proud Boys on his show before. And given them a platform, but literally zero pushback to claims Mm. that they made. So, yeah, that is (laughs) exactly... Like, if I didn't know who Jimmy Dore was... I yeah. would, you know, I would say that's a fucking right winger. Um, yeah. And just so the audience knows who the hell we're talking about. So Jimmy Dore is a uh, political commentator. Used to be a stand-up comedian. Well, he still um, is in between. Yeah, but that wouldn't imply he's actually funny. Um, he's, he's a passion guy. I respect his passion. Tism. His passion, I guess. His, I think his star has definitely fallen um, quite a bit. So he is a American stand-up comedian and political commentator, and he's the host of The Jimmy Dore Show, a comedy talk show on YouTube where he interviews guests of political, economic, or scientific nature. Uh, his material is often presented in a satirical way that involves sketch comedy routines, which are known for their criticisms of both the Democrat and Republican parties. Now, on that face, I would actually be totally cool with this, but Jimmy Dore has gone on a weird, weird weird-ass route. Uh, Like, he has, he's made shit up before, too. Like, uh, what, I don't know if making, making shit up isn't necessarily correct. It's more like, he has said some shit that has been patently false. Like, in July 2020, Dore erroneously said Joe Biden had once hosted a blackface affair with a bunch of rich white people before Dore showed an altered clip circulating on social media since January, which had darkened the face of black singer Jeremy Powell. Or Jerome Powell. I'm sorry. Mm. I don't know who this person is. Uh, one day after the video was uploaded, it received over 100,000 views and has since been removed from YouTube. And the uh, 100,000 views were all people who are batshit crazy and won't believe anything about the people they disagree with politically. Yeah. Also, I have to do a little self-correction here. It actually wasn't a proud boy that he had platformed on his oh, show. Okay. It was a member of the Boogaloo movement, um, which is... Not better, actually. So in January 2021, Dorr interviewed Zachary Clark, a member of the anti-government, far-right extremist Boogaloo movement. Clark used the pseudonym Magnus Panvidia 
Dorr tweeted that he was completely floored to have learned during the course of the interview that Panvidia supported Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ rights and opposed racism, police brutality, and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Again, though, the Boogaloo movement is far right. Let's be real. It's not... It's impossible to tell whether this guy was being honest or not to give the Boogaloo movement some credibility. And I'm going to continue reading here. In an opinion piece for the Daily Beast, Alexander Reed Ross described Doerr's interview as a public relations disaster. According to Ross, filmmaker Rob Weber told Doerr in a subsequent interview that he should have vet people like Panvidia more before putting them out on the internet to tons of people to let them just say what they wanted to say unchecked. And he has also talked about, like, conspiracy theories. And I think, like, the mo- the worst ones involve stuff, like, with Syria, right? Mm. So, in 2017, Dorr argued that the Syrian government's chemical weapons attack on the opposition-held town of Han Shechem I think that's how you pronounce it. I mean, in English, we would probably say Khan Shekun, but I don't know. I've heard it pronounced in a very bad way. I probably just pronounced it. Um, but he said that the attack was likely a false flag orchestrated by groups opposed to Bashar al-Assad. The investigated journalism site, Bellingcat, reported that Dor received uh, $2,500 from the Association for Investment and Popular Action Committees in 2017. The association is responsible for the Serena Shim Award and is described by Bellingcat as a pro-Assad lobby group. According to Bellingcat, Dorr featured Eva Bartlett in another 2017 conspiracy theory segment about Syria. So, who is... Like Serena Shim, um, and what is like this award? I'm trying to figure that out because I've heard of this before. Yeah, um, I can't find anything on it so far because I'm I'm actively going and searching along while you're doing that. Yeah, let me see here. So the Association for Investment and Popular Actions Committees named an award after Shim. She was a Lebanese American journalist for Press TV. Um, Press TV is an Iranian state-owned news network, by the way. Um, it's it's state-run media. So this organization, uh, let me see here. I have so many tabs open. Holy shit. <laughs> um, that gave Door, like, they gave Door this money. And... Let's see here. Oh my goodness! Why is there so much shit? <laughs> <laughs> There's. It's like a. It's a rabbit hole, dude. It's a fucking uh-huh. rabbit hole. But it's also going back to the whole useful idiot stuff. So, yeah. well, let uh, let's switch gears here before we get to our main event for the day. And one thing that really also chaps my butt is that whole Joe Rogan and Sanjay Sanjay Gupta um, interview. Not interview, but discussion. Yeah. Because Rogan has a discussion with his guests as opposed to, like, trying to, you got owned and bullshit like that. So, anyway, 
Check this out, ladies and gentlemen. Here's another thing that I want everybody out there to do, because this is very important. Look at this as a PSA, a public service announcement. Go to your Google machine, put in the word consensus. And what do we get when we do that? Put in the word consensus. I'm going to do it to you. Do it. Do it to it. I'm doing it. Right. So the very first thing I get is the definition of consensus. A general agreement. A consensus view. A general agreement. So here's the thing. Here's the reason why that uh, discussion, I guess, really made me angry and why anti-vaxxers are making me angry. What's the word consensus have to do with any of that, Martin? What the hell are you talking about? Well, here's what I'm talking about. Medical consensus. I don't care that you went to the internet and did your own, quote unquote, did your own research. I don't give a gosh darn that you did that. What I give a gosh darn about is what do the experts say? What does the medical consensus say about the vaccine? What does the medical consensus, the scientific community, the medical scientific community, their consensus, the general agreement, what did they say? Because these anti-vaxxers, man, they will use some bullshit bullshit quote-unquote research i oh, yeah i saw him one youtube video i saw this guy put a spoon up to his arm oh man it stuck on his arm oh they're putting magnets in the vaccine i actually heard my nephew say that and do you know how angry i was oh man i could have not hurt anybody not punch anybody but i could have thrown a table out the window when i heard that but mm -hmm. medical consensus people Medical consensus. What do the experts say? I know that in here in the United States of America, we don't give a goddamn two cents about experts. We don't like them experts, college-educated people. Ha-ha, <laughs> they're so stupid. Yeah, but we need to. Experts, people, experts. If you want surgery, are you going to call your dummy friend down the street who made a YouTube video about medical science have surgery on you? Are you going to consult an actual expert? You know, it just makes me so sick. The anti-intellectual nature and thought in this country of the United States of America. It makes me so gosh darn angry. The anti-intellectual tradition in this country. So ladies and gentlemen, what do the experts say? What is the consensus? And I'm done. My butt's chapped. I got it off. What about you, bro? Very good. So the one thing I will totally add to that too is that there should be a distinction because people who generally distrust the consensus of the scientific community will often say, well, aren't you committing like an appeal to authority fallacy, which are not actually the same claims. So an appeal to authority fallacy is if you were making an argument, like let's say, well, Albert, if you were to say, or trying to argue, for example, that the sky is actually green, not blue, and you get a quote from Albert Einstein about that, and it's literally him saying the sky is actually green and not blue, 
Well, for one, just because that guy is Albert Einstein, an authority in his own field, does not necessarily make it the case that the sky is actually green. Yeah. Or like Rand Paul. Was it Rand Paul, who's an ophthalmologist? Is that him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, talking about like trans issues and vaccines. I'm like, you're an ophthalmologist. Right. It's- and also, too, medical research, right, mm-hmm. is extremely complex and difficult. Well, not only that, it's peer, it, peer-reviewed. Peer-reviewed. There you go. Yeah. That means it has to withstand the scrutiny of the people in that field. The whole point of a peer review is to find problems with an idea, to find its faults, to see where it might be wrong, to give it a critique, mm. to evaluate yes. it. And that's another thing about science that a lot of these people who are anti-science don't know. Science, scientists are constantly trying to prove themselves wrong. <laughs> yes. They're trying to constantly find data that disrupts the traditional narrative of... They're trying to... Their experiments are designed to test hypotheses. And they're constantly testing hypotheses. Constantly, constantly. It, and and the public is so the the uh, generally generally speaking the public is so scientifically illiterate. It's so ah, it's so frustrating. Mm-mm. It is. So, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna switch gears one more time before we get to the main subject, because I want to kind of finish the Jimmy Dore crap that I was gonna go yeah. on. So. Oh, I have to find my spot again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, the organization that the journalism site Bellingcat, which is kind of like a Netherlands-based news website, and it's it's meant to, it's like a fact-checking website too, kind of similar okay. in open source. So it's very similar to like Snopes, right? Um, so it's been pretty it's pretty credible credible source. So it's not just some like no name who are these random people um they're the ones who reported that jimmy Dore received twenty five hundred dollars from the association for investment and popular action committees um so the association is an umbrella nonprofit for other nonprofit organizations formed in 2007 and the parent body of the syria solidarity movement which opposes military conflict and imperial interests in Syria, and which um, one key figure, Paul Larudi, he's an Iranian-born American political activist, um, he is a part of. Now, I will say, I'm actually also hands-off Syria, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not pro-war with Syria. I don't like the United States government, like doing an imperialism so i'm not going to shill for that however your credibility really starts to wane especially Mm. if you are a journalist and political commentator if you're taking money from what is been reputed as a pro-assad group so like if you i'm going to send you like the full name of this organization, so you can Google with me. So well, yeah, well let's let's yeah. So action for investment 
in popular action committees. Yeah. So if you want to do that out there, y'all, and follow along, go ahead. The asso- action association. For- association oh. for investment in popular action committees. Very oh, okay. long fucking name. Holy shit. I know, right? What the hell? All right, let's see what these brothers are all about. So if you Google it, like, look at some of the very first things you're getting. Uh, Influencewatch.org. So what is... I'm going to read some stuff off of Influence Watch here in a sec. Oh, Pro-Assad Lobby Group rewards bloggers on both the left. Okay. And the right, too. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Jeez. Like, apparently even... What on earth? According to a supplement sent to Ohio Ethics Commission in April 2018, longtime Democratic politician and 2018 Cleveland gubernatorial candidate Dennis Kucinich disclosed he had received a $20,000 payment from the association Mm. via the Syria Solidarity Movement in exchange for delivering a speech at a conference hosted by the European Center for the Study of Extremism in the United Kingdom. According to a report published in the Cleveland scene, the conference was the subject of controversy and protest, and a petition signed by Syrian expats in the UK suggested that the conference functioned primarily to spread propaganda for the Assad dictatorship. Later that April, Kucinich, citing related criticism, promised to return the full payment to the association. Um, that's pretty bad, actually. Um, well, it's good he wants to give the money back. Yeah, but that should kind of, I think that's pretty, it's not the most damning thing. It's not like a smoking gun against the organization. Mm. Um, because that, that section basically said there was an outcry that this conference was essentially a pro-Assad propaganda thing. The, mm. the association funds the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity and Journalism. Mind you, again... Uh, the news association that Serena Shim worked for, Press TV, a state-run Iranian media outlet, uh, has a reputation for some anti-Semitism, actually. It's all um, coming back to that. Yeah. Um, publication of Holocaust Denial, which is pretty bad. Uh, let me read this really quick. On the subject of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, an editorial on the Press TV website in 2008 noted, On this anniversary, we all need to mull over, and I'm reading a quote here, over the faking of history and the greatest lie ever told. Hmm. Wonder what they could be talking about there, I wonder. Uh, Whew. In 2000- greatest lie ever told. I'm Googling that right now. The greatest lie ever told. Wonder what you're going to come up with. Whoa, I, I, my butt is... Why did I say my butt? My mind is immensely curious. Oh, Lord. Like, uh, why would this association have an award named for this correspondent who worked for this organization? It doesn't necessarily mean that she herself was an anti-Semite. Don't get me wrong. But if you're working for a news agency that's posting like openly anti-Semitic stuff, that's essentially a government-run news network. 
it's kind of like why would you want to associate yourself with that organization, right? So I I put that the greatest lie ever told in the search in, in into Google, and uh, the only thing that comes up, at least on the first page, is this book uh, by W. H. Uff- Uffington. Hmm. And what does the book say? It says, at least on Amazon.com, it takes the reader on a historical voyage using wit and logic to reveal the evidence of research that no one wanted you to see. The author proves his allegations, presents truth, not speculation, and shows where the future path of the church must lie. Uh, what? (laughs) Jews, Christians, and Muslims have grossly have been grossly misled by their religions. All three were perverted from their shared origins by politics, avarice, and greed. Isn't avarice and greed the same thing? The greatest of these perversions is Christianity. Oh, wow. Okay, so I guess that's the the take of the book. Hmm. Okay. That's weird and <laughs> random. Um, hmm. hmm. Interesting. Well... So, what is the lesson that we want, before we begin our main subject, what is the lesson that we want the audience to walk away with, having covered all this shit? Well, huh. Well, I would say be on the lookout for grifters, um, either on the right side or the left side of the political spectrum. A big way to know if you're being, if, if you're being targeted, if you're being a mark for the grifter is think about if they want your money after they do something provocative like for example they say something that they know will get them kicked off a popular platform like YouTube and then they ask for money to support them or like in the in in the example of Jay Seculo or Candace the grifter Owens um, they claim that they're gonna file lawsuits um, and they want your money to help with the lawsuits. But if you read the fine print, um, it says that only a portion, only a portion of that money that you send to them will go to the lawsuit. It's what president, what former president Oinges Anisface did uh, with his Stop the Steal uh, or, uh, campaign. Only a portion would actually go to the lawsuits. <laughs> so that's a good way to notice. So I just don't want people out there to be misled. Um, Another lesson is when it comes to complex things like climate science or medical science, what do the consensus of experts say? Consensus, not just one expert, not just two experts out there. An expert that they have a PhD in medical science and they're a doctor in medicine somewhere. Yeah, that's one person. What does the consensus say? So those are the takeaways that I want the people to take away. How about you? I think you. I can't say it better than myself, actually. So with that said, I main think event it's time. I think it's that time. The main event. The main event, everybody. All right. The- yeah, those were the preliminary bouts. Now it's time for the big fight. Ding, 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 ding. So, we were originally going to make this episode our finale about the Texas Revolution and the history between Mexico and Texas. 
However, we both wrote a lot of shit. Martin more so than myself. Well, I've got 13 pages already, but we're probably going to go through eight today. I wrote a measly four pages that are double-spaced, because that's how I like to take <laughs> my notes. However, <laughs> um, so, how should we really... I think we should do, like, a quick recap where we well, are. Yeah. Well, I included that in my notes. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So, which where should we begin on your notes? And then Introduction. Introduction? Is it the very first page? Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, thank the Lord. So, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, too, real quick. So, you know, we thought this was going to be one. We thought we were going to be done today with the Texas Revolution. But... I told Zeke, I told, uh, I told Cornbread, I'm like, hey, man, uh, doing this, uh, you know, doing this history and providing my own commentary with it, this is, uh, fascinating. I even put in all caps in the text of Cornbread, I put fascinating, because holy mackerel, this is some, this is crazy history, right? It's true, the text, um, it wasn't all caps, actually. Yeah, man, because that's the way I am. I get passionate about history. Um, so, yeah, do you want to take the introduction away? It will be my pleasure. <clears throat> so, in our last podcast, we talked about the causes that led up to the Texas Revolution, where the Mexican state of Texas seceded from Mexico to found their very own nation state. From the Wikipedia article of Mexican Texas, and also an analysis of five primary sources from both sides of the conflict, we argued that the primary cause for the Texas Revolution was slavery. The Anglo-American immigrants who settled in Coahuila y Tejas, as Texas was known then when it was a part of Mexico, with their slaves, wanted the freedom to continue the lucrative practice of slavery despite the Mexican government abolishing it. For more detail, please go back to the previous podcast. So the very first, and this is me cutting in and not reading the notes, the very first attempt, I guess you could say, at Mexico abolishing slavery was the unfortunately short presidency of the second president of Mexico, Vicente Guerrero, who outright abolished slavery throughout Mexico, enforcing it, especially in frontier regions like Coahuila y Tejas, and other parts, you know, like California, like Alta California as well, and New Mexico, uh, were very, very difficult. But mm. especially in Mexican Texas. Oh, yeah. Today, we're going to go more in depth with what happened after the Texan settlers went to war with Mexico and seceded from Mexico. For our source material today... We will be using the Wikipedia article, Texas Revolution. It is a featured article, so it is generally more reliable than non-featured articles on Wikipedia. And my own little notes here, we will also be doing a bit of a reference check too, to see if something is cited. Uh, while we're reading, oh, yeah. it will most likely be me doing a quick, to see what the source is. You know, if it's like a textbook or something like that. So... Uh -huh. We're not going to take Wikipedia's word on it, even though we are the source. They're, they are going to be the source. But like I said, we're not yeah. going to just take it at face value. We're going to, to do some lateral reading, baby. <laughs> so, some background information. 
Following the Mexican War of Independence, Texas became part of Mexico. Under the Constitution of 1824, which defined the country as a federal republic, the provinces of Texas and Coahuila were combined to become the state Coahuila y Texas. Texas was very sparsely populated, with fewer than 3,500 residents, not including Native Americans, and only about 200 soldiers, which made it extremely vulnerable to attacks by Native tribes and American filibusters. Oh, so I am so glad that you mentioned the filibuster. So, because I know exactly the type of motherfucker you're referring to. So. Yeah, I didn't know until I started reading this. So, in the old days, a filibuster, dear audience, was not just something you did as a parliamentary procedure. It's actually referring to a kind of person, right? A filibuster was essentially a land pirate, if you can actually Hmm. conceive of such a thing. Land pirate. Yeah, almost just like a a land-grabbing dickhead, if you will. Uh, Or, as Martin so eloquently puts it, a filibuster is a special type of asshole. (laughs) Not literal. Filibusters. (laughs) Filibusters are people who go on unauthorized military expeditions into a foreign country or territory to create or support political revolutions. Think about this for a moment. Yeah. Dot, dot, dot. The term Uh, filibuster. It's fascinating, man. Filibuster. Oh, yeah. So this is kind of where it, uh, your description kind of fits into my uh, land pirate analogy, if you will. Oh, right. The term filibuster usually applies to United States citizens who fermented insurrections in Latin America, such as Texas, California, Cuba, Nicaragua, in Colombia, particularly in the late 1800s. But this term can also be used for CIA-type plausible, plausible deniability situations. So let's ask ourselves, why would U.S. citizens go into Latin American countries to foment revolution mm. in the 1800s? Oh, okay. Before the Cold War. All right. Yeah, way before the Cold War. Like I said, way this is the, yeah. the 1800s. No, so I'm asking you, why do you think, especially in the situation of Texas at this point, mm. why would some U.S. citizens go into what is a Mexican state to ferment a revolution for? Well, knowing what we know from the history that we've uncovered the last podcast what i'm thinking is that these filibusters uh, it has to do with slavery because what i'm thinking is that these filibusters the mexican state of texas to become a state in the united states of america so that they can have another slave state to upset the balance of of slave states and free states at this time period which is 1820s yeah 1820s ding 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 So not only that, too, there's also, besides slavery, there's also probably some kind of financial incentive, right? Mm, Like, if you are, it's, and I'm not saying this is the case in every single one, but let's say you're a filibuster, right? And you you don't have a lot of money, but someone's fucking paying you to go 
start a fucking insurrection mm, in Mexico. Yeah. Well, who who do you think that money's going to come from? There's no CIA at the time. It's the 1800s. Gosh. So and who, a white man gets paid off all of that, like Kanye West said. Oh. So, yeah. Essentially, these are. It's. I I really like the term land pirate because that's the yeah, term <laughs> I was introduced to in my uh, reading of. Uh, oh God, I'm already forgetting the name of the book. Ah. My brain is so tired. Um, it was. It was. It's not America. It was the book I read before that. Not El Norte, right? It was El Norte. Thank you. Oh, El Norte. Okay. El Norte. That initially d- used the term filibuster in this context hmm. as a land pirate, but not cool like actual pirates. You know, these pirates <laughs> are like, yo, I don't care about booty. I just want to, like, get this state annexed into the United States so I can make some sweet slavery bucks. Well, also, filibuzz, too, these land pirates, there's a lot of racism that goes along with that. Oh, yeah. And stealing from Native Americans and enslaving um, kidnapped West Africans. You got some good old-fashioned American manifest destiny and colonialism involved, too. Oh, yeah. So, moving on. In the hopes that an influx of settlers could control the Indian raids, the bankrupt Mexican government liberalized immigration policies for the region. Finally able to settle legally in Texas, Anglos from the United States soon vastly outnumbered the Tejanos. David Weber, in his book, The Spanish... And this is the note, too. So if you yeah. go to Wikipedia and ask for the note, you're reading the note. Yeah, so I'm reading note for... And it is, let's see here. Note four is, was it the David Weber? Yeah. Okay. So we got, we have a source here, baby. Don't worry. David Weber and his book, The Spanish Frontier in North America, 1992, page 166, states that in 1830, there were approximately 7,000 foreign-born residents and 3,000-born Mexican-born residents. Totish et al. and their book, Alamo Sourcebook, 1836, A Comprehensive Guide to the Battle of the Alamo and the Texas Revolution, published in 1998. Page 4 of the book I just described states that there were 16,000 Anglos and only 4,000 Mexican-born residents in Texas in 1830. Most of these immigrants came from the southern United States. Many were slave owners, and most brought with them significant prejudices against other races, attitudes often applied to the Tejanos. Mexico's official religion was Roman Catholicism, yet the majority of the immigrants were Protestants who distrusted Catholics. Mm. So we got some beef, not just with race, but also with religion. The very, one of the big things that started this podcast, talking about fucking religion. (laughs) Yeah, we still do. Oh, yeah. And in history, religion usually is one of the epicenters of historical beef. Though not the only source for beef, mind you. But sometimes a pretty big beef, nonetheless. 
Mexican authorities became increasingly concerned about the stability of the region. The colonies teetered on the brink of revolt in 1829, after Mexico abolished slavery. In response, President Anastasio Bustamante implemented the laws of April 6, 1830, which, among other things, prohibited further immigration to Texas from the United States, increased taxes, and reiterated the ban on slavery. Settlers simply circumvented or ignored the laws. By 1834, an estimated 30,000 Anglos lived in Coahuila y Tejas, compared to other to only 7,800 Mexican-born residents. By the end of 1835, almost 5,000 enslaved Africans and African Americans lived in Texas, making up 13% of the non-Indian population. Mm. All right. So do you want me to read your personal notes here, or would you like to read your personal notes? Mm, I can do it. Um, so we talked on our last podcast about the disrespect of these immigrants who figuratively took a dump on the laws, religion, and rights of the country where they came from. <laughs> so now out there, let's focus our mind to the present. Right-winger nativists son of monkeys today I wanted to say son of a bitch but I just said son of monkeys I like this so, better <laughs> yeah so right winger nativists son of monkeys today claim that this is what Mexican immigrants are doing to the US today these same nativists uh, mm. are the figurative <laughs> and sometimes literal descendants of the disrespectful Anglo immigrants back then so this is another reason why studying history is so important it allows us to see parallels and ironies that cause us to be more empathetic, more self-reflective. Like, just think. Just think if those nativist, right-winger uh, people today who hate on Mexican immigrants and say, Build the wall! Build the wall! Imagine if they knew this history about their, maybe even literal, descendants coming into the Mexican territory and taking a dump on the laws, religion, and rights of Mexico. Imagine if they knew that, if they knew this history. Well, that would require them to read a book <laughs> or yeah. something. That would require them to read, period. Yeah, and if they could read, they wouldn't have been fooled by Steve Bannon. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. <laughs> didn't, he go, didn't Steve Bannon go to prison for taking uh, for lying about... Uh, using build the wall funds? I think he's been charged with something. Oh, he's been charged. Okay. But that's another day. That's okay. another thing. In 1832, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana led a revolt to overthrow Bustamante. Texians, or English-speaking settlers, used the rebellion as an excuse to take up arms. By mid-August... All Mexican troops had been expelled from East Texas. Texians held two political conventions to persuade Mexican authorities to weaken the laws of April 6, 1830. In November of 1833, the Mexican government attempted to address some of the concerns, repealing some sections of the law and granting the colonists further concessions, including increased representation in the legislature. Stephen F. Austin, who was not Stone Cold Steve Austin, 
who had what? What? Stephen F. Austin, who had brought the first American settlers to Texas, wrote to a friend that every evil complained of has been remedied. Mexican authorities were quietly watchful, concerned that the colonists were maneuvering towards secession. And they weren't fucking wrong either. <laughs> oh, here's another one that is, I like it when it's in your words. Alright, so my commentary is that this is a stupid move by the Mexican government. But they are powerless to stop these Texians. And Texians being the English-speaking settlers. Um... And here's what I here's what I did not understand. Um, I just don't understand why a group of immigrant immigrants get such a special treatment. You know, it just it makes you think because these group of immigrants come in the country, and oh my God, they get free shit. They get free land. They this get is, free shit. <laughs> this is arguably probably the most ironically right wing thing we've ever said on this podcast. Oh, these fucking immigrants coming into the country getting free shit. We've proved horseshoe. We've proved horseshoe theory correct today. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> and, and, and you might be wondering, what are you talking about? Remember from our last podcast that these ang- these English speaking settlers, these Anglo, these Americans who came into Texas to um, to Mexican Texas were given free land by the Mexican government. <laughs> right. Essentially, almost f- some of the case it was actually free. Some of it was almost free um yeah and to kind of answer the question about why the mexican government was so powerless to deal with this problem so as you stated earlier in your notes here uh the revolt led by santa Ana to overthrow bustamante certainly did not help matters but what i have written in my own notes actually kind of provides a little bit more context into the situation here. So, at the time, after the overthrow of the government of Anastasio Bustamante in 1832, uh, Mexico is in a state of recovery because the the overthrow is actually a pretty bloody conflict. Mm. Um, Civil war, right? Sort of, yeah. So, Santa Ana succeeds in forcing Bustamante to resign in 1833. And as part of the terms to end things with some peace, uh, new elections are held in Mexico. And Santa Ana is obviously a candidate, and he wins. Um, So after he becomes president, he's actually kind of like a very absentee president. And he leaves most of his administration to a guy named Valentin Gomez Farias. And he is, Farias, Gomez Farias is a very, like, moderate, liberal kind of reformer. So the situation in Mexico, besides the government instability and fighting, is also a financial one. Because Mexico, in 1833, is facing an empty treasury from the Bustamante government. And not just an empty treasury, an 11 million peso debt. Mm. So the government at this time is trying to figure out ways to refill this treasury and to deal with this debt situation. Because uh, I don't remember if this had anything to do with the brief 
what was called the Pastry War with France. Um, <laughs> let me... <laughs> it sounds like a ridiculous name for a war. Um, <laughs> because it completely is a ridiculous name for a war. No, actually, never mind. This happens much later. Forget the Pastry War. <laughs> for, uh, but Mexico is facing uh, some severe bankruptcy. And on top of just pure instability. So oh, yeah. there's more to it. There are some other reasons why that the government isn't able to really contain the Anglo secessionist movement. Yeah. So. It, so, uh, and so, yeah, this Santa Ana guy, he soon reveals himself to be a centrist. Cent- and he oh, transitions, huh? A centralist. A centralist. Oh, centralist. Oh, okay. That's a centrist? Yeah. Oh, boy. Sorry. This is a dude who does not have an ideology other than, you know, what's good for me is good for the gander. Yeah. (laughs) And he transitions the Mexican government to a centralized government, I guess. So, um, in 1835, and here is the year of the Texas Revolution, 1835. In 1835, the 1824 Constitution was overturned. State legislatures were dismissed militias disbanded so federalists throughout mexico because remember there's a beef between the centralist and the federalist and federalists throughout mexico are appalled and citizens for example in the states uh in the mexican states of oaxaca and oaxaca oaxaca Oaxaca? Mm -hmm. and zacatecas zacatecas they take up arms so after Santa Ana's troops subdued the rebellion in Zacatecas, Zacatecas in May, he gave his troops two days, two days to pillage the city. Over 2,000 non-combatants were killed. So, Santa Ana is turning into a dictator. Yes. This guy, yeah. Pretty, pretty harsh. Um, yeah. So, I think it would also be very helpful to, to clarify for the audience... What, what are we talking about when we're referring to centralists and federalists in this context? Yeah. So, again, I have, like, my own notes I wrote about this issue. So, yeah. when we refer to the centralist faction, I guess you could say in Mexico at this time, or more like a movement, it's more of a conservative movement. They are more interested in uh, kind of remodeling the government to resemble something similar to like the Spanish colonial system where it's more authoritarian. It it doesn't really, it limits the right to vote. Um, It's very, it has very conservative interests in mind. Would you say it's more concentrated, more power concentrated in the national government of Mexico? Yeah, into like okay. they they wanted a strong central government that would essentially kind of like maintain this uh, social hierarchy. So, okay. for example, like centralists because they were conservatives were big proponents of the Roman Catholic Church, which mm. held a very special place in Mexico, not just as the state religion, mind you, but there was also prior to the liberal reforms of uh, Gomez Farias, uh, included mandatory tithing. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So, and not only that, in lots of uh, the more frontier regions, like in New Mexico, uh, Texas, um, but more so in like Alta California, a lot of uh, these settlements were actually managed by uh, Franciscans and Dominicans. Oh, okay, yeah, priests, Catholic orders. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of these settlements were congregated around uh, not just like a civil authority, but also like a church authority too. Okay. So one of the things that the centralists oppose that Gomez Farias tried to put into place was secular, uh, secularizing the country. And that included confiscating church property and finances to kind of build up the treasury. Oh, yeah. And not only that, in the, especially in these frontier provinces too, uh, to secularize the organization and structure of these settlements. To take them away from the church power and to make it a more civil, secular society on the frontier and the centralists oppose that big time um the centralist or yeah the centralist movement at the end of the day wanted this strong central government that would promote these conservative values and norms status quo basically yeah so in opposition to the centralist was like the federalist movement and i guess you could say like it's a pretty broad movement too uh none of none of these movements are particularly homogenous right um but the one thing that federalists wanted was for um it's like very characterized by this uh liberalism right um they wanted a republic where that was more equal they wanted federalism they wanted democracy for everybody um, they opposed any return to what resembled the colonial Spanish rule at that time. Mm, yeah. The, yeah. These are people who are, you know, they tend to be progressive. Some of them are intellectuals. Some of them are liberal Catholic priests. Um, and a lot of them really want to retain the rights that the states have in the government, too. Well, so, they want a, a shared shared power system, I guess, kind of like how we have here in the United States. Yeah, federalism is America. to more yeah more or less about sharing power, right? Yeah, among different government yeah. bodies, local, state. Like in our in the United States of America, y'all. Here's a little government lesson, but we have what's called uh, shared powers: local, state, national. And if you go to local, you got county government, you got city government. You got local ordinances, that kind of stuff. And state government, uh, county government, state government, national government. So, Right on. So I hope that clarifies what we're talking about when referring to centralists and federalists yeah, at you. this point. Yeah. So Santa Ana, he, he, like you said, he's Machiavellian. He soon reveals himself to be a centralist. And... Man, I'm surprised that he's doing this. He's overturning state legislatures. He's disbanding militias. Um, And he even puts down a a revolt or a rebellion in Zacatecas in May, the uh, the region of Mexico. 
And I'm surprised, man, he killed, uh, he had his troops pillage the city for two days. Over 2,000 non-combatants were killed. Um, and the governor of Coahuila y Texas, Augustin Viesca, refused to dissolve their legislature. Instead, Viesca ordered the session to reconvene in Bejar, Bejar, further from the influence of the Mexican army. And prominent Tejano Juan Seguin, if I'm saying that right, Seguin, mm-hmm. raised a militia company to assist the governor, the Bexar, uh, Bexar, the Bejar, Bejar, uh, Ayuntamiento. Ayuntamiento. A city council. Ayuntamiento. A city council. Um, and so, but Viesca was arrested before he returned to Texas. So, whew, so we're seeing how the national, um, I guess, politics of Mexico is affecting that region that will come, that we will come to know as Texas. And uh, in my uh, commentary here, I wrote that these settlers... I'm going to be honest. They have a legitimate grievance against the government. Santa Ana is acting like a, for lack of a better word, a jerk face here. He's a dickhead. Um, yeah, I wrote dickhead. Although I would still argue that these st- these settlers would have still rebelled um, because they were talking about rebelling even before Santa Ana came into office. Right. But that's what I would argue. Like, uh, and ironically, you can kind of see the consequence of this too because... Like, in the case where the government under Santa Ana is actually taking power away from states and manpower, like the disbanding of militias, for example, yeah, you're actually robbing the states of, particularly Coahuila y Tejas, the ability to actually deal with a growing secessionist movement. Mm. You're opening up the floodgates. You're making it easier for them at this point. So, um, yeah, I can continue reading here. Public opinion in Texas was divided. Editorials in the United States began advocating complete independence for Texas. Continued unrest in Texas posed a significant danger to the power of Santa Ana and of Mexico. If the people of Coahuila also took up arms, Mexico faced losing a large portion of its territory, Without the northeastern province to act as a buffer, it was likely that the United States' influence would spread. In the Mexican territories of Nuevo Mexico and Alta California would risk uh, would be at risk of future American encroachment. Some foreshadowing there. Oh yeah. And the U.S. man, in my commentary: the U.S. cannot help themselves and they cannot but help they can't help themselves you know they find it hard to stay out of conflicts that are so close to their borders i mean the way i like to think of it is the u.s as a witch with a big nose when it comes to this side of the hemisphere they cannot help themselves they smell uh more land they gonna get it they can't help but sticking their big warty nose into other countries business um and then i asked this question um it's kind of a rhetorical one do you think these texians would be so bold if they did not have the u.s support 
Oh, that's an interesting question. Mm-mm-mm. So I'm going to read some of your further commentary down here under oh, Before we get there, um, so everything before that was the background information. Now we're actually going to get into this revolution popping off. So go ahead. Pop, 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 boys. All right. So, reading Martin's commentary here. The Texan Rev- the Texas Revolution officially gets started in the city of Gonzales. Is it even a city? Is it more it is more of a small town of a small small town. <laughs> I find it interesting that it is the birthplace for the come and take it flag in the war for Texas independence from Mexico. By the way, what's in a name? If we call the Texas <laughs> Revolution a revolution, is that accurate? The American Revolution wasn't all that revolutionary. Read your marks, y'all, to understand why the American Revolution was simply the fight of the property-owning gentry class. Preach! Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Preach the, myself. There was nothing revolutionary about it to the poor whites and especially the enslaved blacks. Think about Preach. it. Think about it in respect to the Texas Revolution. If I am a poor Tejano or an enslaved person, my life is not even changing even one iota whether Texas is Mexican, independent, or American. Fuck your so-called revolution, stick it sideways, and shove it up your racist ass. The only change I would see is a change in the shitty flag I see every morning when I wake for yet another day of oppression. Yay me. Dot, dot, dot. Sorry. <laughs> but no, that's some real stuff, man. Like, if, you are, if you're a poor Tejano or a Mexican-born resident, right, mm-hmm. or you're an enslaved person, right, you don't give a damn who... Well, you would probably want Mex- te- Texas to be run by Mexico since you would be a slave anymore. But <laughs> it's, it's... what is a revolution to a poor person? No <laughs> or kidding. a slave? Especially if it's, like, between rich people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I see that, yeah. And we're going to talk more about that, how this Texas Revolution is really nothing but at least fighting elites. Same thing with the American Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> As you would imagine, the centralist government is pretty fucking elitist. <laughs> so, in the early 1830s, the army loaned the citizens of Gonzales a small cannon for protection against Indian raids. Like, one fucking cannon? Seriously? What the fuck's that gonna do? Like, I mean, maybe I can see it being useful. Uh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yes. one? Like, two? Move over to the side! <laughs> yeah, you, you have to, like, constantly move that damn thing. After a, <laughs> after a Mexican soldier bludgeoned a Gonzales resident on September 10th, 1835, tensions rose even further, and Mexican authorities felt it unwise to leave the settlers with a weapon. It sounds like police brutality. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Colonel Domingo de Ugarteca, commander of all Mexican military forces in Texas, sent a small detachment of troops to retrieve the cannon. What cannon? After settlers escorted the group from town without the cannon, <laughs> Ugartequia, I think it's Ugartequia or Ugartequia. Te- 
Tejia. I'm going to say Ugar Tejia. Tejia, Tejia. Ugar Tejia sent 100 dragoons with Lieutenant Francisco de Castaneda to demand compliance with orders to avoid force if possible. I'm sorry, but when they said after settlers escorted the group from town without the cannon, like I can just imagine the settlers walking the soldiers out like, yeah, nothing to see here, man. You ain't getting your cannon. <laughs> oh, come on. Give us the cannon, man. Come on. Give it back. No. Soldiers. No, it's our cannon. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> oh, man. Many of the settlers believe Mexican authorities were manufacturing an excuse to attack the town and eliminate the militia. Texians stalled Castaneda's attempts to negotiate the cannon's return for several days as they waited for reinforcements from other colonies. In the early hours of October the 2nd, approximately 140 Texian volunteers attacked Castaneda's force. After a brief skirmish, Consigneta requested a meeting with Texian leader John Henry Moore. Castaneda revealed that he shared their Federalist leanings, but that he was honor-bound to follow orders. So this dude's like, what, a samurai? <laughs> it's like, he's got to abide by, like, Bushido? I must follow my orders. <laughs> As Moore returned to the camp, the Texians raised a homemade white banner with an image of the cannon painted in black in the center, over the words, Come and take it! <laughs> I've seen this flag, too. It looks like a phallus. Did they read it? Did they write it in English or Spanish? Yeah, no, no, uh, English. No, well, of course they would. Real <laughs> realizing that he was outnumbered and outgunned, Castaneda led his troops back to Bejar. In this first battle of the revolution... Two Mexican soldiers were killed, and one Texian was injured when he fell off his horse. <laughs> Holy shit, y'all! <laughs> Someone spooked old Silver! I'm sorry, but those two paragraphs, like, were funny to me. Like, I'm sorry that people lost their lives, obviously, but I'm just saying, like, I could, like, the settlers escorting the soldiers out, yeah, just leave, nothing to see here, buddy. <laughs> like, that... come and take it! <laughs> I. I... That and, like, this Texan dude, just, like... Texan, yeah, the English-speaking settler. Yeah. He didn't even die. He was just injured. But it was like, oh, oh Silver, no. calm down, girl. Whoa. Oh, shit. Like, who would have thought that two paragraphs on Wikipedia could be so damn entertaining? <laughs> so this was the... This was the, the Battle of Gonzales. This was Gonzales, the yeah. beginning of... The Texan War of Independence. Yeah, and it's... Mm -mm -mm. And I, oh, think, I think your commentary here, I think you've actually already kind of set this stuff before, more or less. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the thing about it, the inciting... It's it's funny to me, not funny, but, yeah, you know, it's, it's weird that the inciting incident for this Texas Revolution was police brutality if we want to look at the soldiers as the police at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, man. <laughs> Very interesting parallels there. Yeah, I'm and, like... And you, also, and you also noted, too, this makes a difference to me, because the first person killed in the battle for America's so-called Revolutionary War oh, was a black yeah. man. Crispus Attucks, yeah. Damn. 
Yeah. Did you know that? I didn't know that, no. In Boston, I believe, yeah, I believe in Boston, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. A free black. God. Well, I don't, I think there's some very, I don't quote me on that, but there may be some veracity, veracity on that. If he was, if he was free or not, or a fugitive. Uh, yeah. But he died in, uh, 1770. Boston Massacre. Damn. Volunteers continued to arrive in Gonzales. On October 11th, the troops unanimously elected Austin, who had no official (laughs) military experience, the leader of the group he had dubbed the Army of the People. From the beginning, the volunteer army proved to have little discipline. Austin's first public order was to remind his men that they were expected to obey their commanding officers. Boyed by their victory, the Texians were determined to drive the Mexican army out of Texas, and they began marching to Bejar. Oh, look at these notes, y'all. You you guys are going to flip your lids when you, when you see what I wrote here. Oh, God, I don't think we can even say half the shit. Let me, let me go, man. Um, so, when I read this, right, I laughed so hard when Austin what had to remind them to follow orders. Like, can you imagine this ragtag group of morons? Like, I can just imagine. Oh my god, I can just imagine corpulent. I use the word corpulent. Um. <laughs> Uh, slow people, um, I don't use the R word, I can imagine corpulent, slow, slow-witted white guys and some Tejanos carrying around guns and speaking in broken English saying, yay, I get to shoot my gun and kill these, insert racial slur against Mexicans here, and laughing maniacally like our friend Bob. Bob. Right? <laughs> imagine Bob being in the, uh, this... Bob would probably, honestly, if like, if you transplanted Bob into this, he, he would probably die. He would probably die of like yeah, some. But he'd have a good time, you know, stroking his gun. Yeah, until he'd probably die of some like easily prevented disease, like. I'd fall off his horse. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I didn't see it there. Damn. So. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill Santa Ana. Yeehaw. <laughs> So I'm like, dude, I don't, these guys don't care about the revolution or they don't care about some supposed wrong done to them by the Mexican government. They just want to shoot dudes. You know, these type of people, like think about these type of people around the U.S. today. Um, slow, incompetent idiots who love to carry guns and shoot things, but not can, but cannot carry a moral bone in their body or an intelligent thought in their minds. I am sorry, but my bias and stereotype is really strong here. Um, and I hate it how Austin what uses the phrase army of the people. What BS, man? Remember, everyone, we are an army. You have to obey your commanding officers. What about that? Do you not understand? What? What? <laughs> And also, Austin is laughable as a military leader. He has no official military experience. You know, this is so very American to give unqualified people positions of authority. I mean, you want to look at the 2016 presidential election and look who got elected. 
Oranges Anus Face. A name I call former President Trump because he's orange and he has the mouth of a puckered anus. <laughs> right? Here's a guy who was elected with zero. Spell it out. Z-E-R-O. Zero political experience. And yet he was elected to the highest political office in the country. Insanity. You know, this is the likes. This is so insane. You wouldn't even see it in the movie Idiocracy. You know, also... What did Mr. Anus Face do when he was office? He, he put people around him that were also unqualified. They were so unqualified, they couldn't even work in the nearest Walmart as a stock person. And I can make that joke because I work at Walmart and I love my fellow Walmart workers. But hey, we know what it's like to work at a shit show. We know. Also, the funny thing <laughs> is, like, if you've ever played anything like Age of Empires or any Total War game, or any real-time strategy game, you probably have more military experience than Austin <laughs> did right now. Yeah. I, as a general in many Total War campaigns, very successful, I might add, I have more military experience than Austin did at this time. Like, I know for a fact that you use spears to counter the cavalry, your cavalry are useful for either chasing down range units or for, you know, chasing down fleeing units or for, you know, like shock tactics. And, you know, you would use your heavy infantry to beat up your spear infantry and stuff like that. It's really simple. I'm very smart at war. Um, He's smart. He's so smart. He's huge, huge. I'm the best general. <laughs> I've conquered Japan more than once in Shogun 2, okay? I have conquered the ancient world in Rome Total War on more than one occasion. I will have you know, playing on the hard mode, after learning that Texian troops had attacked Constaneda Gonzalez. Who's... Kos? Oh, so, yeah, so this article just suddenly out of nowhere mentions this world, mentions this dude, Kos. Are you ready for this guy's name? What What is this guy's full name? Martin Perfecto de Kos. He was a Mexican army general and politician during the mid-19th century. Okay. And Kos is perhaps best known as the commander of the Mexican forces during the Texas Revolution of the 1830s. I had to actually look him up because I didn't see him mentioned but one time right here okay so we know who Kos is okay Kos. so after learning that texian troops attacked consignera gonzalez coast made haste for behar unaware of his departure on october 6 texians and matagorda matagorda texians and matagorda marched on presidio la bahia a fort near the city of goliad to kidnap him and steal $50,000 that was rumored to accompany him. Damn, where'd they get this money from? <laughs> On October... None of these soldiers are kidnappers, dude. This is... Oh, no shit. <laughs> On October 10th, approximately 125 volunteers, including 30 Tejanos, stormed the Presidio. The Mexican garrison surrendered after a 30-minute battle. One or two Texians were wounded, and three Mexican soldiers were killed with seven more kidnapped or wounded. And here's more of yeah. your notes here, too. 
kidnapping. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> kidnapping. Why am I not surprised? These people do not care about lofty political ideas. They only care about money. Also, who is Koss? This is the first time that name appears in the article. Dot, dot, dot. I did some lateral reading. Dot, dot, dot. He is Martin Perfecto de Koss. And he was a Mexican army general and politician during the mid-19th century. Koss is perhaps best known as a commander of Mexican forces during the Texas Revolution in the 1830s. Hmm. Why, why not just call him Decos? That'd be easier. That, that, that'd be Decos. Like, Cos doesn't even sound like a fucking name. It's just Cos. Like, like Prince of Beyonce. I only have one name. Or, or why not just call him... I know this is like his first name and all that, but Martin Perfecto. Oh, that's dope. Perfecto. That's dope. That's, you should fucking start calling yourself Martin Perfecto. Martin that. Perfecto. I'm Martin Perfecto. Oh yeah. That's fucking awesome name. Shit. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Oh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> the Texians established themselves in the Presidio under the command of Captain Philip Dimmit. <laughs> Dimmit. <laughs> Dimmit. Like, if you've ever watched the Fairly Odd Parents, do you know, like, the whole Doug Dimmodome thing? Yeah, oh yeah. It's like that. Captain Fu- <laughs> Captain I'm Philip Doug Dimmodome. <laughs> owner of the Dimsdale Dimmodome. Are we high? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I wish. Captain <laughs> Philip Dimmit, who immediately sent all local Tejano volunteers to join Austin on the march to Bihar. At the end of the month, Dimmit sent a group of men under Ira Westover to in, to engage the Mexican garrison at Fort Oh boy, <laughs> Le Pantelan, Le Pantelan <laughs> near San Patricio. That sounds like a very uh, Nahuatl name, Le Pantelan. Yeah, Le oh. Pan- yeah, oh, Le Pantitlan, Le Pantitlan. Okay, Le Pantitlan, Fort Le Pantitlan, near San Patricio. The Texians take this over with ease. So I just summarized what was in the next with that one. Do you want to read some of this other stuff so I can have a, like, voice Oh, print? yeah, for sure. So on their return to Goliad, Westover's group encountered Governor Viesca. So after being freed by sympathetic soldiers, Viesca, because remember, he was arrested. So after being freed by sympathetic soldiers, Viesca had immediately traveled to Texas to recreate the state government. Um, remember, this dude, Viesca, was the governor of Coahuila y Tejas. And so, Demet welcomed Viesca, but refused to recognize his authority as governor. This caused an uproar in the garrison as many supported the governor. And so, Demet declared martial law. Whoa. And soon alienated most of the local residents. So, over the next few months, the area between Goliad and Refugio descended in the civil war. Goliad native Carlos de la Garza led a guerrilla war campaign against the Texian troops. And so um, I made a note here. I found it interesting because guerrilla warfare. And so um, in the interest of time, we're not going to look up this dude, Carlos de la Garza. Mm-hmm. But uh, what a name this dude is, man. That, th- these Mexican names are like dope. This dude actually tamed a bunch of wild gorillas to fight the Texian troops, and that was actually very effective. Oh. 
They were silverback gorillas that had no training in arms or anything. But he they teleported were, them from the Congo. They were very good at throwing rocks, coconuts, and dried poop at the Mexicans. And they slew hundreds of them. It was very, it was some very impeccable stuff. No way, man. He led a campaign against the Texian troops. I know. That's what I Mex- said. Oh, I said okay. Oh, there's a Mexican. Yeah. All right. So moving on, uh, while Demet supervised the Texian forces along the Gulf Coast, Austin what led his men to Bejar to engage Coast and his troops. So Austin, what is about to fight De Coast? Confident that they will quickly rout the Mexican troops, many consultation delegates chose to join the military. And so unable to reach a quorum, the consultation was postponed until November. Uh, first, on August 16th, the Texian paused. The Texians paused 25 miles from Bejar. In Austin, what? What? <laughs> sent a messenger to Decos, giving the requirements the Texians would need to lay down their arms, and quote unquote, av- quote, avoid the sad consequences of the civil war, which unfortunately threatens Texas. Unquote. Coast replied that Mexico would not, quote, yield to the dictates of foreigners, unquote. So I made a little note here. It's interesting that De Coast is calling them foreigners. I mean, this says a lot uh, because what it says is that the Mexican army, I guess the leaders in the Mexican army didn't see the Texans as the Texians as Mexicans. So like Mexican citizens, I mean, they were probably, yeah, yeah. they're probably fully aware too of the filibusters too. Oh, yeah. Agitating things. The, uh, uh oh, oh, I'm sorry. You want me to go or do you want to do it? No, I can go. Okay. So also give it up for the bullcrap antics of Austin. Um, I can't tell if Austin is being sincere here when he doesn't want to fight or if he's just trying to play the good guy and say, they're going to fight us anyway, so make let me make it seem that I'm trying to be a good guy and not fight them. Because remember, Austin is sent, sent a messenger to Koss saying, hey, let's not fight, man. Lay down your arms. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> what? Lay down your arms. What? <laughs> Crack open a beer. And so, um, continuing, the approximately 650 Mexican troops quickly built barricades throughout the town, and within days, the Texian army, about 450 strong, initiated this a siege of Bihar. And I wrote in my notes here um, a brief summary. So this siege of Bihar is fascinating because there were so many little battles, or rather skirmishes, between the Mexican army and the Texians. It also included such heralded people in places such as James Bowie, Edward Burleson, the New Orleans Greys. So the New Orleans Greys, which was a volunteer army from uh, New Orleans that fought on behalf of the Texans. That sounds like a basketball team. It sounds like the Negro Leagues, the New Orleans Greys. <laughs> Military volunteer. Yeah. Okay, that's it's a thing. And uh, th- this uh, siege of Bejar also includes battles that happen at the uh, Mission Concepcion, which is a mission of the uh, Spanish priest, I think Dominicans, if I'm not mistaken, which I've actually visited before mm-hmm. because when I was in San Antonio. And so um, the ultimate result of the siege of Bejar 
was a volunteer Texan army defeated the forces of Martin Perfecto de Cos or Cos uh, at San Antonio de Bejar, now San Antonio, Texas. So the the uh, the volunteer Texan army whips the butt of the Mexican army at this siege, and so this dude Cos. Uh, Martin Perfecto de Cas, or I'm going to call him Cas, or Cos, whatever. Mm-hmm. Cos surrendered. And under the terms of this surrender, Cos and his men would leave Texas and no longer fight supporters of the Constitution of 1824. And with his departure, there was no longer an organized garrison of Mexican troops in Texas. And many of the Texians believed the war was over. So early victory for the Texans and also let's give it up for the Texians here because the Texians could have killed Coase and his men, but they said, nah, man, just leave. Get out of here. Leave Texas. Take your take your peoples with you. Take your soldiers. Get out of here. And let us practice slavery. <laughs> yeah. But but still, the Texans could have killed them because they were at their mercy. More so, or less, yeah. Yeah. Well, also mine... Remember that this is like a siege, right? And sieges can be pretty bloody affairs for both sides. Mm, yeah. So if you're hunkering down to the last man, it is an actually a pretty costly thing to throw your forces at an armed garrison that is fortified. It's even though like most of the fighting here is skirmishes, right? Like an yeah. actual like storming of the battlements is still a pretty messy and costly affair. And what, um, and what I find interesting too is one historian. Um, so according to Barr, and this is a, this is a note. Um, Alwyn Barr published a book in 1990, Texians and Revolt: The Battle for San Antonio, 1835. Um, Barr has an interesting take on this. Um, According to Barr, the large number of American volunteers in Bejar contributed to the Mexican view that Texian opposition stemmed from outside influences. Um, but in reality, he writes, uh, of the 1,300 men who volunteered to fight for the Texian army in October and November 1835, only 150 to 200 arrived from the United States after October 2nd. Hmm. The rest were residents of Texas with an average immigration date of 1830. So, like... So, volunteers... Oh, yeah. At least, like, five years, more or less. Yeah. But they were still Anglo... They were still immigrants from the U.S. They were still Anglo-speaking settlers, but they were there before, Mm -hmm. I guess, October 2nd, 1835. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we can go on. Um... And what what astounds me about these numbers is that we're only talking about armies with like hundreds to like a thousand men. We're not talking about large armies. So that's what also uh, interests me too. We're yeah. talking about militias, I guess. Yeah, it's essentially like smaller. And the weird thing too about this that makes all the more surprising was that in Mexico, if I remember right from my notes the largest government expenditure was the military. Mm. So you can see, like, you have this bloated military budget, and it's like you're still getting rolled by a bunch of rednecks. 
Well, that's weird because in my notes that I took later when Santa Ana gets involved, um, he has his army comprised mostly of convicts. What the hell? We'll get there, but that's weird. That's an interesting fact. Oh, yeah, slave labor, dude. I'm like, this Santa Ana is a a bastard, man. Ah, Um, boy. So, let me ask you here. um, Well, how long have we been rolling? Let's see. We're at the two-hour mark. Two hour, four minutes. All right, because what's going to happen here, folks? And and so what's going to happen here now is we're going to see... We're going to see more politics because right now there's going to be a law in the fighting in the Texas Revolution since Decos was defeated and surrendered to the Texian army at Behar. So there's going to be a law in the fighting for about uh, for a couple months until February of 1836. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so. Uh, these notes that I have coming up are more about the politics of what the what the Texians did after they got Decos Decos out of uh, Texas. So I don't know if you want to keep going on here, or I think if this, you want to keep this next week. I think this would be good for another week too, okay. because we are also planning something to. Shift gears a little bit, aren't we? For this month? I mean, Salem. That's right, folks. We got something planned for a Halloween episode. Okay. We're gonna do some history. We're gonna go back to... I don't know, because that seems like we've... A time period in American history we've covered pretty extensively so far, right? The early... The Puritans, um... Yeah, and I've got my primary sources already for Salem, the Salem Witch Trials. Right. So that's either going to be, let's look at it, our calendars here. Um, well, next week is the 25th, and then after that is November 1st. So how about we, let's do our Salem episode for next week. Does that sound like a good idea? Just pause this and then do the Salem episode next week? Yeah, and then when we get back to this, we can do a bit of a recap like we did at the beginning of this, uh, our main segment. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Um, And yeah, like I said, I'm looking at the Salem uh, primary sources right now. So that's already there. Right. So what's probably going to happen, folks, to keep this within the month of October, normally we upload or I upload around Sundays or Mondays. So I'm probably either going to upload and promote the episode on Saturday or Sunday. And if you follow us on Twitter at Ministry Modus, you can get the updates for when that episode is up awesome so this is i guess this is the spot where we're going to wrap up here and it's time to do some our our regular plugging right so oh yeah like i said before follow us at ministry modus on twitter or you can reach out to us by email at martin and cornbread at gmail.com So, oh, yeah. 
And I just want to say, too, um, yeah, so I guess when we come back next week, we'll talk about the Salem Witch Trials. We'll talk about, um, I guess, the Puritan background, but we'll also talk about um, what life was like in Massachusetts at the end of the 7th century, and then we can come back to Texas to give our readers a break, or our listeners a break. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think we start I think we stopped at a good place too with the Texas Revolution because what I was what what interested me and what I found fascinating when uh reading this history and and absorbing it is dude, um the Texas Revolution th- different parts. This first part, the Mexican army led by Decos got their butt kicked. And now so the Texians uh many of them think the war is over. They think the revolution's done, and now they're going to get to politicking um, and beefing with among uh, with each other, and start when it comes to their new government. So that's also just as fascinating as what happened before. So yeah, and ironically, I'm looking at my at the analytics right now. We actually have a listener from Texas. Actually, we have two listeners. It looks like from Texas. Oh yeah, one from Mesquite and the other one for Gilmer. Hey, well, hello there, our Texans. Speak of the devil, and not only that, our reach continues to expand beyond the borders. <laughs> I'm seeing two two new listeners from two different yeah. countries. We got right. we got a listener out there from Austreich, Austria, and we got another listener from Chile. All right. Well, hello there. Or hola in wait a minute, Austria. How do you German. say hello in it's German? German. Gut is it guten Tag? You can say guten Tag. I'm sure it works. Right. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's awesome, man. I, yeah, that's that's exciting because um, we'll tell you how America really works. <laughs> they probably already know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, live, I guess, yeah, I, if, yeah. If you live in any Latin American country, you are probably <laughs> yeah, all too do. aware of yep. what how the American government works. Sorry, that was like sorry, that was like completely like I need to check my privilege. <laughs> Let's America explain this to the homie in Chile. Yeah, our fellow Americans, right? Yes, our fellow Americans. Yes, we are all America. And we're all brothers, no matter what country we're in. Uh, I wonder if, uh, when we go off the air today, like right now, should I... I don't know if I can replicate the rhyming I did last uh, week. Well, you did a very good job with the rhyming last time. And it actually fits perfectly with the closing tune. So... I do have a problem looking at the calendar, y'all. So, what's the problem? What's the what? What's the problem? Two weeks from now, I have parent-teacher conference on the day we record. Hmm. On the day and time that we record, and I got to be at school then. Well, we can Oof. either take a break that week, or alternatively, I can hold another interview. Because I have been thinking about bringing on another friend as a guest. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, that's cool. So, we're, we have plans. Plans within plans within plans. Okay. Like in Dune. Well, actually, too, that Monday, the November 8th, um, 
I think I have something else school related for that day as well. Eh, we can. Eh. We'll figure it out. Like in the words of who was that? All my rap fans out there. Um, oh man. Well, I'll just go back to the. In the words of uh, Willie Hutch, is it Willie Hutch? Brothers got to work it out. We'll work it out. Right on. <laughs> so, Martin, do you have any flowing, beautiful words to our audience as we bid them farewell this evening? Um. I don't know if they're beautiful or flowing, but I just want to say um, history will make your mind empathetic and your life more gay. <laughs> and I don't mean gay in a homosexual way. Much love out there to everybody. I mean gay in a bright and happy way because if you study history, baby, you'll unlock the mystery to empathy and sympathy and when you do that you'll become a more informed citizen and oh my goodness love will overflow from your heart and your bosom like a great big fountain and so what happens then history makes you come alive opens your eyes my brothers and sisters and spreads love and peace because the more you know about history the less the mystery of the world and hatred leaves that's why history is so important y'all thank you once again for this <laughs> thank you for that, that verbal diarrhea <laughs> that flow of artistry and you know yeah, what right. <laughs> regardless of whether history makes you gay as in happy or gay as in homosexual we, I don't think care. we love everybody I think those are both excellent outcomes <laughs> yeah yeah uh, all right everybody all right folks thank you once again for joining us on this pretty wild ride as incoherent <laughs> and high as we sometimes come <laughs> off we even love the grifters too we love everybody and a base they they receive a very base line value of love oh whatever jesus was talking about all right. Yes. Once again, thanks for joining us this evening. This evening, we must bid you buenas noches. A ditto. <laughs> <laughs>